As the door to coal is closing, really here's the opportunity for other doors to open. How do we as Dene people create an opportunity and get projects on the ground that are Navajo owned in which we're putting Navajo energy, renewable energy back on those transmission lines at the same time, create partnerships that are mutually beneficial instead of partnerships that spiral us back into the same kind of structures that were in place before. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet for all. Our aim is to share the stories that bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Black Mesa is a large upland region in Northeast Arizona with semi-arid slopes and the greens of Pinon and Juniper accenting the red cliffs. Black Mesa has been a part of the homelands to the Diné or Navajo and Hopi people for millennia. They honored the interconnectedness of life on this landscape including the spring water that seeped up from an abundant aquifer. Today, the Navajo and Hopi reservations overlap on Black Mesa. Since the arrival of settlers and the diminishing of Navajo and Hopi lands, Black Mesa has been riddled with the extraction of natural resources, uranium, coal, natural gas, water, and land fragmentation. With the Rural Electrification Act of 1936, the federal government tried to close the gap nationally in energy access between rural and urban areas. The communities off the beaten electrified path were now given power in more ways than one. But many native tribes were excluded from this, creating inequities that are still felt today. On the Navajo Nation, more than 15,000 homes do not have electricity. This makes up 75% of the unelectrified homes in the U.S. This equates to no running water or refrigeration. Many are forced to rely on propane tanks, which exposes residents to pollution. While the people of this region lack sufficient access to electricity, their land and waters have been extracted and exported to supply electricity to millions of people across Arizona, Nevada, and California. In the 1960s, Peabody Energy began operating coal mines and then later coal-powered generating stations on both the Navajo and Hopi reservation land. Contracts for these operations were negotiated by John Sterling Boyden, who served as legal counsel to the Navajo and Hopi people, while unbeknownst to tribal members, was also on the payroll for Peabody Energy. The agreements that came out of these negotiations favored the needs of the corporation over the people who had called this place home for millennia. While the coal operations generated jobs and tax revenue for the Navajo and Hopi people, the environmental impact has been astounding. For the past half century, Peabody Energy pulled an average of 3 million gallons of water out of the Navajo aquifer each day, the area's only source of drinking water. With a dramatic decrease in water, the people of this land were forced to end traditional methods of sustenance, such as terrace farming and sheep herding, which had been done for generations. Pollution to this water as well as the air from Peabody's operations was also apparent, creating severe health impacts on the communities and the workers. Today we're speaking with Nicole Horseherder, a Diné woman who lives on the Black Mesa Plateau in Navajo Nation. She is the executive director of the organization Tone Jonane, a Diné term translating to Sacred Water Speaks. 
For the past 20 years, the group has served as the eyes, ears, and voice of the Diné people of the region, striving to preserve and protect the water, people, and advocate for the responsible interaction with natural resources. Nicole speaks with us about the complex dynamics between the coal industry, the water, and the people of Black Mesa. She tells us about her organization's work and the importance of a new way forward that empowers Diné people to determine the fate of their energy, economies, and stewardship of the water. Our organization began in 2001 officially. Prior to that, we were just kind of a loose group of individuals, mostly Diné, and mostly people who lived or were from, are from Black Mesa. We started out as water protectors and to this day, it's guided our work and helped us focus our energies, our work, in, I think, the most appropriate and effective places. And it has led us into coal mining and coal-fired power plant, um, the issues around those, because that type of industry especially uses so much water. And in our case, so much potable water. Our only source of water on Black Mesa is being used to support the coal mine operation. So today we're still water protectors, but I think the way, because of the work that we do, people think that we're primarily formed to address coal mining issues and power plant issues, but that's not the case. It's really, it's the water that guides us and the water is is what we're protecting in our work. For sure. And with that, with the water, you know, what were the things that you were witnessing on the ground or in the ground that had initially prompted you to start this work and form this organization? There, I think for the many that started on this journey, talking about water and dealing with water and fighting for water, I think our stories are a little bit different for the reasons why we were organized, you know, and I'm not talking about Tuanajanane because before Tuanajanane, there were many individuals who were trying to figure out a way to protect the water sources and not just the Inaquifer, but other water sources on the Navajo Nation. And together, we, we brought the importance of water to the forefront. I mean, as Indigenous people, water is important. It's part of our, of course, our day-to-day lives, but it's part of ceremony. And we have a, a very specific relationship to, to water. But I think in this time, because things are so complex now and life can be so complicated and there's so many entities, you're dealing with corporations and business and growing cities and, and people have, the relationship with these basic elements of life, there's there's distance between them and their relationship. And this is not just with everybody in the nation and the world. This is with indigenous people also. But this this relationship to water and to the other elements of life has its roots in indigenous culture. And I'm not saying that other cultures don't have the same kind of teachings or knowledge. I'm just saying that as indigenous people of North America, all we have to do is turn to our, our culture and our people's teachings to find some of these teachings that can help redirect us and can help us going forward 
on how to prioritize things and how to prioritize our lives. It, it gives us direction on how to be more sustainable in our everyday living. This is what all of us as individuals, we were reaching for that. And everybody's story is going to be different. My story, you know, I went to university. I, I have training in the Western sense. And so I, I, I came back from university a second time at this point, really thinking about um, settling myself back in my home community, among my people, and trying to figure out where I best fit in with this new acquired training and um, how do I help my community, my people move forward in this, in this age, in this time. And uh, in doing that, I realized that the, this place that I wanted to build my home, there wasn't a water source anymore. And going back into my memory, of course, you know, I, I said there used to be a spring here, there used to be a spring there. What happened to the water sources? These places don't produce water anymore. And I went looking for these answers and I went looking for these answers within the various departments of the Napa Nation that are responsible for water and for water infrastructure. I ended up talking to people at the USGS, which interestingly enough at that time had been monitoring wells and spring discharge and wash discharge on the Black Mesa Plateau for about um, close to 20 years at that point. But I did find the answer and it was due to Peabody's use of groundwater and they were using in some instances three times more than the communities combined together on Black Mesa mm -hmm. and it was just an enormous amount of water that they were using and and the way that they were using you know 24 hours a day seven days a week and they were pumping from deep wells eight different eight deep wells on Black Mesa and so they were really having real serious impacts on the water. I'm always amazed by the magnitude of the impact that they were having and how they could just blatantly do such a thing on indigenous lands and not have a backup plan. Like there wasn't any plan in place in which we are going you know anything that said anything close to like periodic rests of the aquifer periodic investigation of the aquifer nothing like that mm -hmm. it was just in there and just pumping 24 7 and using it like there was going to be no impacts at all and 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 likewise the media the, the information they were putting out there about the way they were using the water and the impacts that it would have, they sounded so sure of themselves. You know, some of the, some of the things that would, we would hear from Peabody is, Peabody is using no more than the equivalent of one cup out of a 55-gallon drum. Um, Peabody is the impacts to the aquifer are minimal. In fact, it's the communities that are impacting the water levels. That studies show that the communities are having the impact and not Peabody. You know, just coming out and saying things like that with no data to back themselves up. And, and then what's worse is that nobody was asking them to prove it. 
And I'm saying, you know, the Navajo Nation, the Hopi tribe had every authority and every right, in fact, an obligation to their people to demand these kinds of things and never did. So even though I'm putting so much of the, the responsibility on Peabody, there are other responsible parties in this as well. And this is where the work began. This is how it all started. This is, it's like you go looking for trouble and you're going to find it. And of course, the next question was, where do we start? How do, how do we bring enough awareness to this issue that we're going to impact change, that we're going to get the Navajo Nation, who is so invested in coal and so reliant on this type of industry for its revenues and the number of jobs that it gives the Navajo people, that they, they, they were in essentially in the pockets of industry. They were trying to be friends with people who were just using them. Yeah, it was, it was way more than we ever expected, but that's how our work started. Mm, yeah, I could see why that's a good question that you asked, you know, of just where do you start? You know, it, it would seem like such a big mountain in front of you. And I'm sure that's something that a lot of folks around the country can relate to, you know, when an industry is so embedded in the local community, as far as providing revenue and jobs to that place, it's hard for folks to speak up against that industry. And what were some of the health impacts that you were seeing in the community from the pollution that that was causing, not just in the water, but in the air itself um, for workers and for folks living there? When we first started the work, it was kind of just focused on the water and the water usage and the fact that the springs and the seeps had disappeared. That was the starting point. But as we moved along, of course, we realized that there was a lot of health issues. There was a lot of pollution that was associated with it. And then it just, of course, just got bigger, you know, because the, the mine, the way the contracts are written, the coal from the the mine is dedicated to specific power plants. Like in this case, the Cantamine coal is, is dedicated to the Navajo generating station. So the way that we started to look at this issue, this problem is that here's the coal mine and here's the associated coal fire power plant. And that this is one big coal industrial complex and that the responsibility of the water use and the impacts to the water is not just on the coal plant anymore, but it's also on the power plant as well. And then the, the purpose for which the power plant was originally built was to power these pumps at the place of the diversion on the Colorado River, further down the Colorado River at a place called Lake Havasu. And the purpose of the pumps was to bring, to lift the water out of the Colorado River into this canal called the Central Arizona Project Canal, and then push that water first uphill, then downhill into the city of Phoenix, and then eventually it would reach Tucson, Arizona. So the power was used to divert the, the water from the Colorado River and push it down into the central and southern Arizona, who had used up their aquifers by the 1920s. So basically, we were supporting the growth of an unsustainable city with and with Navajo power made from Navajo coal and Navajo water. It, you know, I, I try to make sure that people understand that Peabody Energy, when mining that coal, was also mining that water. 
because they were using a, an enormous amount of water to get that coal out of the ground. So we put responsibility on the Central Arizona Project as well, because this project, which is often des described as the most expensive water project in, in the world, is a 300-mile uh, water canal. And we were lifting water from this the Colorado River and putting it into the canal. We were using power to lift and push water. You know, in each step of the way, we're talking about man-made, corporate-backed, government-backed projects that were terribly expensive, very unsustainable, just defied the laws of, of nature and gravity all along the way. And this is, this is what Navajo was supporting. And so when, when we talk about this project, we were expanding our awareness of how really big of an energy issue we were getting ourselves into. And we realized at that point that indigenous peoples of Northeast Arizona are essentially providing the raw resources and subsidizing this operation so that the rest of the state of Arizona can grow. And this included Nevada and California, namely the Las Vegas um, area and the Los Angeles area. So at that point, the picture was clear of how big of a, a problem this was. It was, it was an energy problem and a water crisis in the making. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. And I mean, I think what's also devastating is how little people know about that. You know, even those people that were on the receiving end of all of that water and that power, you know, across the Southwest, that unfortunately, so many of us are disconnected from the source of our water when we turn on our tap as well as our electricity. But just the sheer amount of the water depletion that was taking place, you know, not just to divert the water itself to those areas, but also the amount of water required to transport the coal to then generate the energy that was also supporting the growth of those places. And is that still the system that's in place as far as how that energy is transferred using that water? Yeah. So up until 2005, the Black Mesa mine and these are mines operated by Peabody Energy. The Black Mesa mine shut down in 2005. And um, when we brought public awareness to how much water was being used to slurry coal to the Mojave Generating Station, we were able to successfully shut down that operation. In the adjacent operation, Kienta mine, that coal was being um, sent on conveyor belts down to the base of the plateau and loaded up in rail cars to the Navajo generating station. So that operation ended in August of 2019. So it's pretty recent. The only coal in Arizona is actually on the Black Mesa plateau in Northeast Arizona. So, you know, while Navajo Nation has other coal operations, namely in New Mexico, the Arizona side of the Navajo Nation, the only coal operation is on the Black Mesa Plateau. That's where the only coal is found. But those operations have stopped. And so 
our focus and our energy now is on transition. So part of transition for us means the full reclamation of Black Mesa. So we're asking the Office of Surface Mining for what's called a significant permit revision. And anytime that there's a significant and major change in a coal mining operation, the law is such that it's supposed to trigger this significant permit revision. And in this case, even though Peabody Energy has stopped, nothing's happened. The OSM continues to just allow Peabody to submit minor permit revisions and continues to just approve those one at a time. It's intentional that Peabody is kind of sidestepping its regulatory obligation to move into this process in which it would then reevaluate reclamation or the work that now has to be done. So essentially what, what we're expecting to see out of the significant permit revision is that we're expecting OSM to then open up for community input and then for federal agencies to get involved so that the various different aspects of the operation can be reevaluated. And this includes the cost and a comprehensive assessment of the water that's been used by the mining and what it's going to cost to reclaim the water as well as, as the land and get rid of the waste and reseed it and, and then monitor it for the years to come. So these kinds of things we are expecting to see and there is no action. Peabody's basically put off reclamation since it closed the Kianta mine and uh, they're blaming COVID for this. Mm -hmm. But you know, all over the country, renewable energy projects are being built, they're going up and they're not being delayed by COVID. So all, I think this is, this is the pattern that we're seeing with especially coal companies that are closing up, that we're seeing delay in reclamation work. Sure. Yeah. And I think around the country, you know, there's a lot of the conversation in this just transition happening for coal-centered communities of calling on the government to help out with mine reclamation and a just transition, which is essential. But it's rare that we hear a call to hold these companies themselves accountable to also be active in supporting these things. And I think that's something that yourself and your organization does a great job of bringing attention to that really, I think, should be coming more to the forefront for communities around the country. Yeah, we're going to be, we're bringing attention to it. But that's, that's a, it's a big problem holding industry accountable. And unfortunately, we have to pull in federal agencies mm -hmm. and governments because they are the people holding these agencies accountable to the work that they should have been doing. You know, like the Office of Surface Mining is in charge of enforcing mining regulation. OSM has always treated Peabody like a special customer. Hmm. You know, your special customer comes walking in the door and you always let him know of the latest discounts first or give him a couple of perks here and there. That's exactly how OSM has been treating Peabody all these years. And so 
as we're getting governments involved and bringing this to the highest levels of government, we're just hoping that there'll be some accountability here, that they'll actually have some teeth to make both these federal agencies and, and these corporations clean up and pay up. We've just had years and years of federal agencies like EPA and OSM, you know, the regulation, the laws are clearly written. I, I've never seen a more gross negligence of your position than I've seen with the EPA and, and OSM and, and DOI for that matter. You know, always looking the other way as Peabody pumps 24-7, you know, the, a pristine aquifer, the only water source for the indigenous people of Black Mesa and just looking the other way and not, not requiring any investigation at all. It's just, it's overwhelming. Yeah, for sure. With that, you know, if we could kind of switch gears to go from the high level of decision making in this process to the really ground level uh, grassroots work that's happening. Um, We really love to amplify that work and show the success of it. Um, Of course, there's challenges in it as well, but just the importance of having this work that's locally led and community led and that that's where we really see a lot of this necessary change happening and really tangible change. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've been seeing in your community there? Yeah, I I try to stay on top of what other organizations on the Diné lands are doing. There, There's just so much good work happening. A lot of really grassroots level, community-based level work trying to uplift communities um, and and homes, families who, like, say, are wanting to get back into agriculture but don't know how to start, trying to get people easier access to water, maybe some solar panels because they live in such a remote area of, of tribal lands, those kinds of things. So I just want to mention that I'm I'm being cognizant of all the the good work that's happening out there on Diné lands. The work that we're doing, I think, is just by default. And what I mean by that is that here you have the power plant and the coal mine and they've stopped operating. And then, you know, I've looked at the status, the situation at that point in time. You know, what do we have here to work with moving forward? In the case of the now closed gen- Navajo generating station, we have all these transmission lines that the largest coal-fired power plant in the West, 2,250 megawatts. These transmission lines are not part of the decommissioning. These transmission lines are so valuable. The owners of these transmission lines are going to want to keep them in use. How do we, as Diné people, create an opportunity and get projects on the ground that are Navajo owned in which we're putting Navajo energy, renewable energy back on those transmission lines and forge partnerships with these utilities that still have ownership to these transmission lines. And how do we get them to commit to buy that energy? And how do we keep these partnerships in place at the same time, create partnerships that are mutually beneficial instead of partnerships that spiral us back into the same kind of structures that were in place before. 
the original contracts between the Navajo Generating Station and the Navajo Nation, these are, these are contracts that I would not consider mutually beneficial. But I know that for the entire duration of coal mining on Black Mesa, we have sold our coal below market price to Peabody Energy the entire time. We sold the water that was used to support the mining operation at terribly low prices. Uh, we really undersold ourselves as a nation. Selling pristine drinking water. You know, I remember when I first started working on this issue, we were selling it at like something like $470 an acre foot. And you've got water being sold from the river that's not even pristine drinking water being sold at like $3,000 an acre foot in, in the state of Colorado, just for comparison, you know, and, and you've got the people who live on the plateau who, who haul water, a lot of us haul water, buying water at $3,260 per acre foot. You know, we're, we're paying $3,000 an acre, the equivalent of $3,000 an acre foot as community members and Peabody's paying $471 an acre foot just it's just gross the contracts are written and where we're just basically subsidizing these operations going forward i don't we don't want to see those kinds of contracts we want to see contracts in where the navajo nation is able to use the the projects and the investments that they make in these projects to help grow the nation to help build basic infrastructure to help save and protect the water sources and not have to use it for industry and to, to use those water sources that we've dedicated for so long to industry to now be able to deliver water to these places that have no water infrastructure and really help uplift the people of the Navajo Nation. We've not been able to do that with these past projects. And then to be able to move the, the workforce forward into today where the technology is better and we're using solar and wind to, to produce the energy and produce the energy at much lower costs than what coal and oil and gas has been, has been doing and less impacts to environment. And I think it really opens the door. And this is what I think people, especially of my nation, don't understand is that as the door to coal is closing, really here's the opportunity for other doors to open and to think of ways in which we can use the water that we once dedicated to this type of industry. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity and I just want people to be able to see that. This concept that I'm talking about, we've actually put it into some actual projects because now the Navajo Nation is working with the city of LA and this is due to our, we've initiated, we, we as an organization initiated this project, but this project is now the contract, the agreements are almost complete now. And that is, there's a partnership between the Navajo Nation and the city of LA through their utility, the Department of Water and Power to identify lands and put a renewable energy project there in which the Navajo Nation is a partner and we're putting renewable energy on those transmission lines and, and it's being delivered to the city of LA. 
So that's one project that's in place. Another project that we're working on is we're working through the Arizona Corporation Commission to try to get just transition, what, we, what we're calling just an equitable transition support for the Napo Nation. This is a, a number of different types of support, one being just straight out funding, another being increased renewable energy projects on the Navajo Nation, in which the Navajo Nation will be involved in the project itself. And it would be the same kind of thing where it's renewable energy being put on transmission lines owned by the former utility owners of the Navajo Generating Station, and that there would be a commitment to buy that renewable energy. These are places where there's an opportunity for the Navajo Nation to continue receiving revenues for energy projects and that these transmission lines are being used by uh, through these projects, even though it's not a dollar for dollar and a job for job replacement, that at least there's some revenues continuing to flow to the nation. There's some jobs continuing to be created but most importantly, that we're not just flat out just going off this cliff after coal mining stops. And that would be devastating if, if that were the case. And so we're trying to be innovative and creative about how we transition. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to hear about this, you know, overdue narrative of methods that empower the communities rather than extract, right? And... There's something I wanted to speak with you about. Um, I know I've read in articles and other pieces on you and your organization, this concept of Diné fundamental law. If you could tell us in your own words, kind of what that entails and how you see it as something that can be customized for different regions, obviously, but can be universally applied to decision-making across the world. Yeah, so... Diné fundamental law is, it's a number of different laws that address the different areas of a society. And so one of them is natural law. It lays out that in Diné society, we are given certain elements. And of course, we have the earth that we live on and the sky, essentially the universe in which we live under. And it basically directs us on how we should live within these elements that we're given. So in in the Western sense, it's basically um, the creator gives the earth and the sky to the people, and it shows you how you live within those those boundaries that you're given, these the environment that you're given basically to take care of the earth to take care of the water, to take care of the air. Uh, These are the elements of life. To have reverence and respect for the the energy from the universe, you know, the, the sun, basically. And to live within the boundaries of these elements. Because these elements, not only they give you life, but they have, they, there's enough power in these elements that it can take life as well. Um, For example, if you go out to the ocean and you jump in, you know, the water is very strong. It's it's an enormous body of water. It it can drown you. Flooding, if you happen to be in an an area where there's a 
a flood, you know, from like, say, the monsoon rains. We're always careful here on in our homelands, especially during monsoon season. And we remind the kids not to play in the wash during monsoon season because we have flash floods. It can it can drown you. So these laws are not laws that man can change. These are the laws of creation. The the problem with that for today's society is that they don't work well within these laws. And the Navajo Nation as a government does not work well within these laws today as well. Diné fundamental law is cited in the energy policy in one place. Basically, it says that before any kind of energy development happens, if it's some type of extractive project where, you know, the earth is going to be dug and the water is going to be used, that we will follow the protocols of Diné fundamental law and we'll make our offerings so that we have followed the protocol in place in order to move forward with this this project. The problem now is that fundamental law is used just as a rubber stamp. It's just used as part of the process to get some project off the ground. It's not actually being used to evaluate a an approval or non-approval to a project. So that's the problem that we have today, especially our government and that the way that they view fossil fuel and extractive projects. That's that's the problem with the way the Navajo Nation uses fundamental law today. It's a it's a gross misuse of, of fundamental law. It's a mis misuse of a very important law that really is used to keep us aligned with our environment, aligned with our teachings and is a good blueprint to take care of the environment and to be stewards of the land. And, and that's, that's not how it's being used. As we're working on revising sections of the energy policy, we're really taking a good look at fundamental law. And we're not just talking about how it should be used, but we're actually evaluating how the Navajo Nation has been using it in the past. And I think I think that's a really important step in trying to redo the energy policy. We're late in the game in this. We we wanted to have a new energy policy out um, by the time that the NGS plant shut down, but we just don't have enough experts to help. We just don't have enough people in our organization to do the work. And so we're reaching out to whoever we can um, to help us out with it and the various different sections, you know, because energy policy doesn't just talk about coal and water. It talks about oil and gas, uranium and other extractive industry. We need other people who, who are, have been working in these areas and are experts in these areas to help us out. So that, that I think is in short, my explanation of fundamental law and how we're trying to use it to help us out. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. And it's really a a blueprint for all of humanity, right, to function and uh, make decisions going forward in a way that's truly sustainable, not perpetuating this decision-making process that only gives us short-term gains 
you know, to the detriment of our societies and, and our planet. And I wonder if you can tell us kind of in general the vision that you see for your community as far as how they're operating, you know, in ways that benefit the people and the landscape that yourself and Tona Jonéane will continue to work towards. I think that um, the work that we're doing, um, the transition work we're doing is by default um, a result of the closure of the NGS plant. I mean, that's that's a lot of work in itself. It's just some of the pieces of that work um, that I think are really important is the community benefits piece, because that's not something that these new partnerships, the, the parties to these new partnerships, they're not talking about that um, enough, I think. And I think that in order to make sure that there is a just and equitable transition like you know, as we keep saying, is when these new projects are initiated with involvement of the local communities and the, the local people. And I think all of these projects, I think that's the correct starting point. Projects in the past have been just representatives of the tribal government and representatives of, say, the corporations, the utilities coming together, and boom, that's it. That's where the contracts are drawn. These new projects have to involve the local community, have to involve the local leadership. We have to include those communities and make sure that those communities are getting some direct benefit so that there is transition for them as well and that they can continue to plan for their community and develop their community the way that is best for them, in, and especially in a way that's sustainable. When you have tribal leadership and corporations coming together, that doesn't happen. They don't know what the environmental impacts at the local communities are. They just see what's happening at the corporate level. Uh, they just see the, the, the flow of the revenues and the jobs, and that's kind of where it stops. And, and that's been the problem. I think community benefits and talking about it and, and figuring out what that is and what that means for, for each community that hosts these new projects, that's a critical conversation that we have to have. And I think part of the challenge is that these communities are probably not ready to be at the table and to talk about what they want to see in these new contracts. What does community benefits mean to them? And how do you put that into these agreements? That's the preparation that I think um, organizations like ours try to help communities with. It's kind of like um, we're initiating these projects at the at the higher level but we're also we always stay grassroots we, we never leave that spot even though we move up and down on this on this spectrum we never leave that spot because when we don't see that involvement taking place we always end up being that entity that organization to make sure that the local people are involved and have some kind of say and it's working to a certain extent. We're still more reactive than proactive, but less so today than we were, like, say, 2015, 20 years ago. 
I think at that point we were just, it was always reactionaries. The coal mining companies or the agencies were always a step ahead of us. And we were always trying to just block something. Today, I think that more communities are prepared with what they want to see as part of the agreement. And that's a good thing. You know, I just had a discussion with NTUA yesterday morning. We were talking about community benefits and, you know, we've already sent our document to them saying that here's here's some principles of community benefits that we would like to see in these new contracts that you're drawing up with communities and with with these um, with these utilities. And we want to make sure that there's, you know, not just not just jobs and not just revenues going back to the nation, but something beyond that because we've seen that before we've seen from the owners of ngs or peabody we've we've seen them talk about benefits in terms of revenues um, jobs and a couple of scholarships how what beyond that do you have to offer that was you know part of our conversation yesterday and uh, something in which the communities can actually have um, the funds sitting there and be able to to use it and not have to go through these long processes with the tribal government on tri- and try to access money and always be competing with other communities that have similar needs. Um, you know, if you're hosting the, any of these projects, there should be some direct funds flowing right back into the community so that they can use it to offset the impacts of these projects. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that really lays out clearly, you know, some things that are needed from folks. And um, my last question is if you have any final calls to action for folks, either within your community or in other communities nationwide that may be going through similar things with the need for a just transition, any other messages that you have for folks? you know, action that's needed to collectively move us forward in a good way? There's there's just so much that people on an individual level can do. And, um, but I think other, other things that I would mention to people would be to talk to their representatives and senators and, and about, in terms of, our communities in the Northeast Arizona. The Navajo Nation still does not have water rights in Arizona. It's a really controversial issue. We are fighting stakeholders all across the state for water that belongs to Diné people. We are one of the largest tribes in the nation. And of course, we have a huge land base in, in Arizona. But the fact that we don't have water rights is evident of the representation that we have in our state and nationwide, probably probably just as Indigenous people, I would say. I think it really speaks to how we are probably looked at like third-class citizens, but also that they want us to stay third-class citizens. This is what I tell our congressmen in Arizona. I tell them that the upper basin Colorado River borders our northern boundary. The Colorado River borders our western boundary. The San Juan River is north of us and 
becomes the Rio Grande to the east of us. And the Little Colorado River makes up portions of our southern boundary. So in Arizona, almost every single major waterway surrounds the Navajo Nation in one way or touches the Navajo lands in one way or another, either runs through it or makes the boundary. We have every right to have access to that water. However, the way that the laws are written, this, this is not so. We, we've not been able to make use of any of those major rivers in, in Arizona. And so what I tell our congressmen is that the water in the upper basin especially uh, run makes up the northern boundary of our reservation. And there is no other user, especially in that region, besides us that can make use of that water. So why don't you, as per the resolutions that were passed in 1966 and 68 for the NGS plant, that when the NGS plant is retired and it shuts down, that those waters are supposed to be returned to the Navajo Nation. And I tell him that the simplest and easiest way to help the nation transition and recover from this economic devastation and the closure of these coal-fired power plants is, is to return that water. And this is something that's becoming complicated it's more, to, in my mind, it's more of a will to do it. It's not a question of they can't do it. It's they won't do it. And he and he tells me himself that this is, this is an absolutely, you're, what you're asking me is going to be absolutely difficult. It's, I'm, I don't, it's not something that I'm going to be able to do um, anytime in, in this administration. And I just responded that You've got to keep talking to your colleagues. You've got to keep talking to everybody in Washington, D.C. You've got to put, continue to put pressure on the state of Arizona from where you're at to, to return that water. It, the problem is going to be that they don't want to do this because they know that water is scarce and that because of this continuing drought, that the levels in the rivers are decreasing and the, the amount of water in the lakes are also decreasing and so they want to maintain whatever it is that they've got in these big cities you know with the the canals and the man-made lakes and the golf courses and those kinds of things and they want to maintain that when the more important issue is making sure that you do what's right and return that water as it is written in the resolutions that were passed all those years ago so that this power plant could could operate and could exist the way that it that it did for the, the the time that it did. This this is the biggest problem I think we have today, and this is the biggest issue with transition. And and in my mind, I'm talk, I talked about these other projects, but I think this is the most important transition issue that we have today as Diné people is the return of Upper Basin Colorado River. And if anybody who has ties to their representatives can talk about these things and let them know that it's important and that nationwide, it's gonna take a big push from every single representative to make sure that this happens. That's, that's what I would convey to anybody out there who wants to um, help out, learn a little more about it. We have fact sheets on it that we can send 
and we can get them the information they need so that they can talk about these things and write about these things on our behalf. And I think that's, I think that's really the most important thing at this time. And if there was only one thing that I could choose as that the top priority, that would be it on this road to transition. It was a great honor to speak with Nicole Horseherder, and we thank her for her time and sharing her insight. You can follow Tonejonaene on Instagram at to.nizhoni.ani or on Facebook and Twitter at the same name without the dots. You can find more information, support their work, and contact them for the information sheets that Nicole mentioned at their site, tonejonaene.org. For those within Navajo Nation or in other communities looking for inspiring models of community-led just transition work, we encourage you to check out the wonderful work being done on the Navajo Nation through groups such as Native Renewables, which is led by Dene Women, bringing solar energy and jobs to the Navajo and Hopi Reservation, Navajo Yes, which empowers Dene youth through health and wellness, and the Dene Community Advocacy Alliance, which empowers the community through food sovereignty, just to name a few. A project being done in partnership with Tone Jonane and local partners is Navajo Equitable Economy, found at NavajoEquitableEconomy.org, which lays out a path for a just transition from coal economies that follows Diné fundamental law and traditional virtues. For more general information for communities that will be directly impacted by the fallout of the coal industry nationwide, check out the work of the Just Transition Fund whom we spoke with in episode two of this second season of our podcast. Links to all of these are listed on the show notes for this episode. As the world transitions to a renewable energy grid, it's important to note that about 87% of the mining companies that extract the six minerals essential for solar panels, wind turbines, and electric cars, meaning cobalt, copper, lithium, manganese, nickel, and zinc, have had reports of human rights and environmental violations. It's crucial for the renewable energy industry to create rigorous checks and standards for its entire supply chain so that our global energy system is truly sustainable and just as we move forward. The Business and Human Rights Resource Center has launched a tracker tool to allow investors, businesses, and civil society to trace the allegations made against companies that mine the minerals essential to the renewable energy industry. That link is also in this episode's show notes. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more inspiring action to help you find your role in a thriving planet. We also would be very grateful if you leave us a review, which helps other listeners to find us. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories number four action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.